Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med Podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. I've got a slight attention shift or direction shift for you today. This is with the author of a paper that came out earlier this year, but it got swallowed up a little bit in all of the attention that was being paid to COVID. Dr. Stephanie Ames is my guest today, and I'm going to let her do her formal introduction with us later. But we're talking about a paper that she lead authored that was looking at the readiness of hospitals to see children and how that compared to their outcomes. There's been a number of studies and some methodology published for hospitals to evaluate how ready to take care of children they are. And that often includes, do you have the appropriate equipment and services? But this is one of the first things that has actually looked at, does that seem to matter in big real world terms? I did ask Dr. Ames to dig into the methodology here because one of the complaints that I had heard when this paper initially came out was that maybe this problem was being overblown. And I really don't think that it is. We're not saying that other places can't take care of children, but there's probably an effect with things like, do you have the right size equipment to be able to care for children? And just like many other things in medicine, there is some cut point where you need a certain number of volume to hit the same outcomes as other places. So there's going to be a lot more information that comes out about this as the research in this becomes increasingly funded. So I'm hoping you you find enjoyment with this. I will post a link to the article in the show notes just so you know what we're talking about. So my name is Stephanie Ames. I'm an assistant professor at UCLA at Mattel Children's Hospital, and I am a pediatric critical care physician in the Department of Pediatrics. Stephanie was the lead author on an article that came out not too long ago and got a lot of attention. It was titled Emergency Department Pediatric Readiness and Mortality in Critically Ill Children. And this topic has gotten a fair bit of attention, particularly from governmental funding agencies recently, on four places where kids show up for emergency or urgent care. How ready is that hospital? hospital to see a child. Stephanie, I'm wondering if you could maybe tell us why do we even care about this subject and was there any background data or how did you get into this study? From my standpoint as a critical care physician, I anecdotally saw a lot of variation in how we, when when we received children from outside emergency departments, a lot of variation in the care they received. And so it sparked my interest there. And then looking at the literature, saw pretty impressive variation in the care that children receive. We know that every year over 30 million children present to emergency departments to seek care for their illnesses or injuries. And what shocked me was that majority of these children are seen in emergent, general emergency departments, that majority of those hospitals see very few children per day. And nationally, this disparity and difference in care sparked kind of national attention. The concerns regarding the quality of care in emergency departments for children was a highlight of the 2006 Institute of Medicine report, which called the state of care at that time uneven. And as we know, pediatric patients have unique needs and require specialized training of personnel, pediatric appropriate equipment and supplies, and importantly, uh, appropriate weight-based medication dosing. So this this call to attention and, and my own anecdotal experience uh, really sparked my interest in this study. Yeah, and that that was something that I found really interesting about that initial report and some of the data that's come out since is just getting these institutions to have the right size equipment for kids is sometimes a really big barrier apart from knowledge and, and procedures. But the actual stuff can be a little bit hard to get a hold of. Definitely. I think it's not uncommon or, you know, in my experience, it's not been uncommon to receive a transfer or a call from another hospital where they may not see many children per day and they may not have experience in children, particularly small children, and ask them, you know, what's the patient's blood pressure? And hear a response, you know, we don't have a cuff that would fit this patient. That in and of itself kind of sparked some concern for me. So then y'all decided to embark upon a study. Where did the data come from? So we 
compiled a lot of different data to conduct this study. You know, interestingly, in 2013, you know, a lot of other researchers, including some on this study, also had similar concerns that many emergency departments weren't ready to care for children or that the preparedness of emergency departments was varied. Um, so they formed the National Pediatric Readiness Project, which was developed to assess emergency department adherence to the AAP and ACEP guidelines for the care of children in the emergency department. They conducted this study in 2013, which was a survey study to many hospitals in the U.S. I think they sent it over to over 5,000 hospitals with a 24-hour ED. And they sent a survey assessing whether or not they met the criteria of adequate care based on these the prior guidelines. And this assessment included evaluation of administration staff, coordination of care, staff training, quality improvement efforts for, for pediatric patients, and then again, equipment and supplies. And so we were lucky that the survey was performed and many hospitals responded, and that gave us a good indicator of what the pediatric readiness of hospitals are based on the guidelines. And so the results of the survey were a weighted pediatric readiness score, which was a out of a 100-point scale. So if you had a score of 100, you had were completely ready to care for children based on the guidelines. And if you had to score, I think the lowest, you know, was in the 20s, the lower the score, the less ready based on the guidelines you were to care for children. So with this data, we were able to match hospitals to their readiness score. And to do this, we used a large administrative database, the HCUP database, which has administrative claims from all inpatient admissions and all emergency department care in the U.S. And so we, we matched hospitals based on their pediatric readiness score and their HCUP data. Do you want to talk a little bit now about sort of the pros and cons of using an administrative data set? Sure. So administrative data is is a wealth of information, but it's not very granular. So you're looking at a bird's eye view and it's basically coding data from inpatient admissions. There's also emergency department coding and things like that that are also in this data set. So we use the HCUP SID, which is the state inpatient database, and the HCUP SED, which is the state emergency department database. And these databases are codes that physicians put in for billing purposes. So they're they're not very granular. So they're look at, you know, what was the patient age, some demographic information and their disease process. There's procedure codes, um, but there's not a lot of information on, you know, PRISM score, things like that, that would be really valuable for identifying severity of illness. And so you miss a lot of that specific patient data that you could get from an EHR or from a prospective clinical study. But the nice thing about the HCUP data set is, is large. So you can look at multiple states, multiple years, and, you know, millions of patients and get a sense of kind of what's going on nationally, which is not something you can get anywhere else. Yeah. And my understanding of it is, even though it's not granular, hopefully the volume of it is big enough that you can still get answers out of the data in a way that you there's no chance you could if you tried to do it just in a local or even a, a prospective collection um, is very, very difficult. Exactly. I mean, you know, when you combine all of them together, you're talking about millions of people. And so you assume if there's an outlier, you know, it may be made up for in in volume with other patients. I had a couple of specific questions just based on how you all defined things. So one of the outcomes um, or one of the pieces of data that you were looking at was critical illness. And can you tell me how that was defined in the study? Sure. So, you know, again, with this looking at this granular data, it's hard to say, you know, this patient, you know, was the most sick or this patient was the least sick because you are looking at billing codes. So we decided to define critical illness after, you know, a long debate as acquiring an ICU admission or dying in the hospital. And so we assume that 
you know, if you were to die in the hospital, that you were critically ill. And if you require the ICU, that you were critically ill. Obviously, there can be outliers to this as well as some ICUs have different admission criteria, but we assume overall that if you're requiring an ICU, that you are critically ill. Yeah. And that actually was one of the questions that I wanted to talk about is how did you land on that? My experience has been that the admission requirements uh, place to place for what has to go to the ICU can be wildly different. So was the the expectation that in the large volume of data, that those things kind of wash out? Exactly. I think that, you know, we assume the clinician's judgment was appropriate, that if they went to the ICU, they they required ICU care. And it's hard to say, hard to find another way that you could do this in this data set. We did look at condition-specific patient populations that we think require ICUs, like sepsis, traumatic brain injury, but only in the population that required the ICU. And so the other thing that we did to kind of quality check this is look at their severity of illness score based on their PCAR and severity of illness score in the emergency department. And majority of our patients had a four or a five on their severity of illness score, indicating the most severe illness in the emergency department. So that showed us that there was a, you know, a relatively good quality of patients requiring the ICU. But that's not without its limitations as well, because you assume you know, that the emergency physician has all the information that they need to make an assessment. And sometimes we know that you know, the emergency room, you're triage and, and send out and things change in the patient population. So that's why we felt it was important to have ICU and also a death as a definition. How did you address the fact that some of the hospitals that are listed based on Pew's Ready scores don't have ICUs? Where do they fit in this data set? So the really unique thing and kind of novel thing about our analysis was that we linked patients across time. So we took a patient who presented in an emergency room and followed them throughout their admission. And it didn't matter if they transferred hospitals or stayed in the same hospital. They could go ED to ED, ED to inpatient, or ED to the inpatient in their own facility. And so it didn't matter if they didn't have an ICU at their hospital. What mattered is that they eventually ended up in an ICU and that they started in an emergency department. Those were our really only two criteria for entry into the study, along with a few other um, outliers. So it shouldn't make a difference whether your hospital has an ICU, as long as your physician in the ER and your staff in the ER recognizes this patient needs an ICU and transfers to the center that you have an agreement with that has an ICU for pediatric patients. I think this is really important just to highlight because I messed this up on first read. I definitely didn't realize that you could follow people through time. And and my question to you initially was, if some places don't have ICUs, but uh, ICU admission is one of the criteria, how are you getting an equivalent denominator so that you could actually evaluate readiness and outcomes? And so it makes it make a lot more sense to me. And I think this is important because this is the, you know, to our understanding when we were doing this analysis, this is not something that's been done before. And I'm sure it has been since then. But, you know, even when we were going through review in the paper, this was a concern. But, you know, we were able to follow patients through time and place using a visit link variable in the HCUB data set, which allows you to follow patients across time. Um, and we, you know, we did a lot of things in our analysis to assure we were following the patient for the same admission so that we weren't getting something different. And it was a really, you know, novel thing to do, but I think it was the only way you could do this study because you want to account for that at first initial emergency department care. Yeah. Well, let's get to the thing I'm, I bet everybody's waiting for us to talk about is what did the study actually show? Can you give us kind of an overview of the results? Of course. So overall, you know, we evaluated over 20,000 what we call critically ill children who presented to over 400 hospitals um, and found that, you know, majority of the children did present to a ready hospital. But for children who did not present to ready hospital, the mortality was increased. First of all, the unadjusted in-hospital mortality was increased for ho- patients presenting to hospitals that were less ready. 
And then after we adjusted for severity of illness using the PCARN score, age and chronic conditions, we found that presentation to a hospital with the highest readiness was associated with the lowest odds of death. So, and I mean, this is a little bit of what you might have predicted to begin with. Assuming that there is some validity to this readiness score, your results should be better if you score higher on it. And to me, the first take-home point from this is a almost like a sanity check that this score and this construct has some meaning in, in the wider world. Exactly. I think that's where we're looking at next is what about this score is the most important for hospitals, particularly those hospitals that don't have resources to employ everything. What about it makes them the most ready to care for these children. But a lot of it makes sense. You know, when you think about, you know, if you don't have the equipment, if you can't take a blood pressure, if you're not using weight-based dosing for your medications, you're likely to have different outcomes than hospitals that are. But some of it, the whole package together means that the hospital is invested into a ready, you know, being ready to care for children. And that maybe in and of itself is important. Yeah. And you stated that the majority of patients were seen in hospitals that were considered ready or sort of met a minimum standard on their readiness score. Looking at that the other direction, only about 5% of the cases in the, the data set were in the lowest quartile of readiness. And, and I'm wondering if you can talk to that concept at all. Is, is readiness directly related to patient volume or, or is there some other factor that we might be looking at going forward? I think that they play hand in hand. So if you don't see a lot of pediatric patients, you're unlikely to invest in the care for them because financially it seems that that wouldn't make sense. And so that I am not surprised by that, that the hospitals that see the least amount of kids are likely to have the least be the least ready. And we also know that um, in looking at other illnesses and other research, that patient volume really matters in terms of outcomes, particularly in critical illness. We know that in ICU's patient volume really matters. So the, the more volume you see, the better outcomes you have. The better you're going to be. Yeah. 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 And that, that makes sense. Something else I thought was interesting in the data was that most of the deaths overall occurred in the ED, not once they had made it to the inpatient or ICU setting. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, does this represent some sort of critical time period early on where things can really be intervened on? Or is the issue that ICU doctors are just better than ER doctors? <laughs> I don't think that that's the issue. I think, <laughs> I think there's a couple things and you lose this again. This is a limitation of the data set that you lose that granular picture. You can't see exactly what was happening in that emergency department. And so is it that the patient came in and was misidentified as not being ill and triaged differently and then the care was delayed? Or did the patient come in, you know, arresting and, and had been down at home for 30 minutes and the chance of survival was minimal? It's hard to say, but I think when we look at large data sets like this, we look at the overall trend and and follow that. And so it's, again, we, we lose a lot of that granular picture with the administrative data set, but those arrests and things did present also to large hospitals that were ready or hospitals with higher readiness scores. And so it's hard to say exactly what was happening. Yeah. And that issue of downtime, we talk about a lot because most pre-hospital providers are not very willing, or at least they're less willing in kids than they are adults to call a death or stop a resuscitation before arriving to the hospital. So there are kids that get to the ER that maybe have been down for a long time. But if you're not an EMS agency that sees a lot of kids, there's a general unwillingness to not at least attempt a resuscitation. So we do get a fair number of those patients who the resuscitation was probably futile to start, but it's hard to say that before they, they get to the ER. Exactly. And, you know, what we hope in the large data set is that those patients where, you know, the care may not have been able to save that patient regardless of the quality of care, we 
assume in the large data set is equally distributed between the four quartiles of readiness. And so that we assume that that is accounted for in terms of the large data. A couple of other specific data related questions. And then I have one statistics question that I don't totally understand. And I'm hoping you can explain it to me. (laughs) Um, So there were some baseline differences between the quartiles in the data set in ethnicity and age and illness severity, as well as chronic conditions. And I am wondering whether there is an effect on the conclusions based on those. Is it a sign of an issue with the data? Is it a sign of the distribution of patients that tend to show up at more or or less ready hospitals? I think, you know, all of the above. And so when we look at the data, we see that the patients that present to the highest quartiles, so this is typically the larger hospitals, large teaching hospitals with a lot of pediatric capabilities. These children are younger, they are have more chronic conditions. So that does make sense to so those patients that have chronic needs that need subspecialty care are likely to seek care at the children's hospitals because of their follow in subspecialty care. So then when we did our analysis, we adjusted for age and severity of illness as well as chronic conditions to make sure that that was not a factor in determining the risk of mortality because certainly the higher your severity of illness, the more complex conditions you are and, and the younger you are, the, the higher the risk of mortality is what the literature has shown. Right. Regarding the other, you know, regarding race, we did not adjust for that. We didn't want to have that be a risk factor. Patients should be treated equally equally regardless of their race. And so we didn't want to include that. And then when you look at the numbers, there is a variation in in terms of the ethnicity and race. However, this may just be because of the large data. And so what's clinically significant and what's statistically significant varies in terms of that. Right. Does that answer your question? I think think it does. And and I, this might be me just trying to explain some underlying issues in our in our current society. But I also wondered whether what you're picking up there might be a a true way that resources are distributed in the country and the fact that we know that they are not equally distributed along racial lines. Well, the interesting part is that when you look at the numbers, the lowest quartile of readiness, those hospitals are typically less than 100 beds, non-teaching community hospitals that are small with limited pediatric capacity. Those hospitals are smaller in smaller communities. Majority of patients seen at those hospitals were white. The more urban uh, metropolitan places had a more diverse racial population. Right, right. And that, that kind of just mirrors what we know about the distribution generally. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit about statistics. And I'm mostly wondering about the line where in y'all's discussion, you mentioned that, you know, the, the big finding from this is that increased readiness is associated with lower mortality. But then there's also a line in here that says when you did the analysis using a, a method called fractional polynomials, that the opposite conclusion was found. And so I am wondering how to square that. What are fractional polynomials? Why is that something that you did? And then why is that a piece of analysis that can be maybe not ignored, but does not invalidate the rest of the conclusions of the paper? Sure. So our primary analysis was looking at the quartiles of readiness. So based on the distribution of their readiness scores, we lumped them into four quartiles, so four groups. And that's, you know, an arbitrary thing. So there's a cutoff. And so if you had a score less than 88.2, you were in quartile three. And if you had a score less than 74.9, you were in quartile two. And so there's an arbitrary cutoff to make those groups even for the statistical analysis, for our regression analysis. And so that was our primary analysis. But we do recognize that those, that's not a continuous model. So that 88 may be no different than 90, but we group them into two different groups because of the analysis. And so it's just an arbitrary cutoff that we chose. And so then we chose to do fractional polynomials, which models pediatric readiness score as a continuous variable, but it doesn't fit it into a linear 
regression. It takes whatever shape the data will give. And so that's the beautiful part about fractional polynomials is that they will mold the data into whatever shape that it best fits rather than a linear regression, which assumes a linear relationship. So this relationship you can see in the graph is linear once you kind of get to a score of 50-ish. But before that, it's, it goes in the opposite direction. And so, you know, that's the one part where we said this has a little bit difference in our from our analysis that this fractional polynomial felt that if you were in the lowest quartile, you actually had the, the lower adjusted odds of mortality. However, when we look back at this, the number of hospitals below this cutoff of pediatric readiness score of 40 to 50 was very small. And so statistically, you see that the confidence intervals for this fractional polynomial are very wide. So we can't reliably say what the relationship is here using this method because there's just too much variation because the numbers of hospitals are so small. Yeah, that was what I assumed based on the discussion was was that you weren't just ignoring it, but that a limit of this particular methodology and the way these results came out is that below or sort of in the lowest quartile, there's not enough hospitals to really make a meaningful conclusion. And, and so you have to kind of cut off the evaluation at that point. Exactly. Because if you look at the figure and figure two, the confidence intervals are so wide. So you, the relationship could be really anywhere in there. Uh, it's hard to say. But if you had a lot more number of hospitals in that lower readiness score, which fortunately we didn't makes it hard to make a conclusion Okay, that's, you know, final, particularly yeah. in light of the conflicting analysis. So what is your big takeaway from the paper and what is next? So the big takeaway from the paper is that children who present to more ready hospitals have, particularly with a critical illness, have better outcomes, according to our analysis. And the big takeaway from this is that it makes sense for hospitals to invest in improving their pediatric readiness. All hospitals that see any children should improve their pediatric readiness. If that's not a feasible thing, then we talked a lot about different solutions that could be a possibility for hospitals. You know, if they if they aren't financially feasible to improve their pediatric readiness, because it does, it's not no cost improvement. There's been a lot of different attempts to ease the financial burden by cohorting hospitals and sharing resources in terms of things like quality improvement efforts, administration staffing, coordinators um, that can help offset the cost. Then developing a system to kind of say, you know, we don't accept children or have a system where you have a referral for a hospital that does. I think the next steps, um, you know, there's a lot of interesting work out there in terms of improving pediatric readiness and using telemedicine for emergency departments that don't see a lot of volume of children to have a telemedicine with a hospital that does with an emergency department or an ICU that takes care of children so that you can have telemedicine there to help in the resuscitation efforts and the care of the child. And then also an interesting analysis for me that I'm interested in looking at is what exactly is the most important part of this readiness so that if hospitals can't implement the whole bundle, that they could at least implement the most important parts. Is that a study that you are already embarking on? Uh, we've started to look at that. Um, and through this publication and through the networking with the various different authors on the paper, we've had a, a lot of people reach out to us about their projects and their interest in, in terms of pediatric readiness. And it's been a really exciting collaborative effort between all these people. And so we've looked at it in, in various different ways, but are thinking about the next step for that. Yeah. This has been the thing I've heard from some of the emergency medicine colleagues who maybe aren't quite ready to believe this or or have a little bit of skepticism, which is okay, is if you look at the PEDS readiness score, there's a lot of stuff in there. And in a lot of hospitals, doing all of it is not going to be feasible. And so their big question is, what do we start with if we we only have this amount of resources? What's the biggest impact thing? So I, I love that y'all are already thinking about answering that question. 
Exactly. And I think that question might be confounded by, you know, the fact if the hospital is willing to invest that much into pediatric patients that, you know, may mean something, but whether that is because of their volume of patients or because of the need for it, it's, it's different. But I do think it'd be important to look and see what parts of that survey are the most important so they can triage implementation, you know, based on, you know, their financial ability. So is it, you know, having the equipment, I would argue, is important, but also the policies and protocols are probably very important as well. But, you know, we don't know until we look at the data. Right. And where I think a lot of this is going, and this is my own personal belief or or conflict of interest, since this is a lot of what I work on, is kids are probably, for those hospitals that don't see them very often, going to have to be considered in the same bucket as other high-risk, low-frequency procedures, where the majority of the practice on them is going to have to be simulation. Mm-hmm. Because you may only see one or two of these individual things in your career. So the only way outside of equipment to really make the people more ready for this is, is going to be practice. Exactly. There's been, you know, some interesting work in the Northeast about sepsis resuscitation and comparing general emergency departments to pediatric emergency departments and doing sepsis resuscitation and showing that pediatric emergency departments outperform the general emergency departments in terms of their checklist for their sepsis resuscitation. So that would be an interesting thing to kind of continue and improve upon for those hospitals. I agree. You could apply it to, to anything where the patient population is you're unlikely to see multiple a day of that patient population. And the treatment requires rapid treatment and no delay, which is the case in typical critical illness. Yeah, Appropriate and timely treatment is necessary for those patients. Yeah. And I mean, I try to think of this too, from the standpoint of anytime an adult shows up in my ER, I'd freak out and yeah. I, I think I forget all of medicine. So, you know. <laughs> no, definitely. I think it's, I mean, it's understandable if it's not a patient population that you care for. And, you know, even if you see seven children a day, majority of them are not going to be critically ill. And an awful lot of what we see doesn't really need an, an ER, but then the ones that do really need yeah, it. Yeah, they really um, need it. And, and trying to pick them out is, is I think, the hard part. So. Yeah. And I think that the less you see, the less you're able to identify variations of abnormal breathing patterns and things like that. Yeah. It's, it's a challenge to overcome with just equipment. Like you said, it's also important to think about the training because if you don't see that, you know, your ability to care for it may be different. Anything else that we missed in the discussion today or or any big take-home points that we haven't addressed that you'd like to leave the audience with? I think it's really impressive the work that the National Pediatric Readiness Project put into, you know, this project that I did would not have been possible without their efforts. And, you know, I think that there may be some skepticism about what parts of the survey are the most important. But overall, the fact that they've put this effort into is is really laudable and important work that they're doing. And I've been really impressed with their efforts to really improve the care for all children, regardless of where they live and what the closest emergency department is. And so I think that that really should be noted that the work I did would not be possible without their work and, and their work is quite impressive. And then I just want to thank all of the co-authors. You know, Jeremy Kahn is my uh, mentor and this project would not have been possible without him, um, as well as Billy Davis and her statistical support. Jen Marin from the emergency department, Erica Fink from the ICU, and Lenore Olson and Marion Goshill from the EMSC. I always have a hard time wrapping these up, partly because I absolutely love talking with these authors and I could go on for twice the length that anybody would listen to a podcast, but also because how do you summarize an article that says we need to look a little bit more, but at least this initial data suggests that there is real value in increasing the readiness of your hospital to see children, but it's going to require an economic outlay of time and resources and training. And I don't really know where the exact balance of that lies. 
I am fortunate enough to work in a place where I tend to have all of the resources that I need, but that is not the case everywhere. And making those decisions has got to be really, really hard. So if your local system is one of those places that doesn't see many children or you find yourself with the right equipment, I would absolutely love if you would champion that cause to your administration. For those of us that do work at maybe a subspecialty children's hospital, I do want to encourage you to continue to be really gracious with the folks who are transferring you patients because they are often dealing with this in a situation that is less than ideal. And I just imagine how I feel every single time I have an adult that accidentally shows up in my shop and, and can't imagine how that feels on the other end with a really sick kid. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find the rest of the Little Big Med podcast either earlier in this feed or at the Little Big Med website, www.littlebigmed.com. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at jasonwoodsmd at gmail.com. Wherever you're listening to this at, if you could please go leave a review, it would really help increase the listenership here and keep me going. Thanks for your time. <laughs>